Hello and welcome back to Lives on the Lines. I'm Catherine Kerr and today we're on board Greater Anglia's brand new branch line trains as we pass through the gateway to the Norfolk Broads, this lively and watery part of England. We're going to be travelling by rail along the chain of lines known as the Wherry Lines, which run from Norwich to Great Yarmouth and Lowestoft. They're named after the old kind of boat that used to navigate the waterways for trade here in the days before the railways. Today the region is bursting with life, from a diverse natural world to the millions of tourists that visit each year, and the people who live and work within the broads. The Wherry Lines Community Rail Partnership has invited me to explore the region where they do projects in partnership with local communities, government and Greater Anglia to keep rail at their heart. Today we'll start our journey in Lowestoft and make our way cross-country to Norwich, where we'll make the connection down to Great Yarmouth, another jewel in the crown of the Broads. We'll hear how one woman unlocked the mystery of the Broads' formation, and we'll take to the water to find out why so many love spending time in this landscape. So let's climb aboard. As we leave Lowestoft, we follow the harbour and the north side of Alton Broad. From the station here, you can reach this wildlife-rich part of the world. This is also a hotspot for watery attractions like boating, sailing and speedboat racing. And the park here is home to Lowestoft Museum, not to mention some amazing views of the Broad. Next stop will be Summer Layton. We're at our first stop, Summer Layton, and as soon as you step off the train, you feel you could be miles from anywhere. Both platforms here are alive with volunteer-created flowerbeds and tubs, so it feels very sheltered. But at the crossing point, you realise you can see for miles. Looking south, you can stare down into Suffolk farmland. But we're heading up through the pretty village of Summerleyton, across the green, to one of the grandest stately homes in England. It's no coincidence that this area has its own railway station. In the 1840s, the railway entrepreneur Samuel Morton Pito brought the Jacobean mansion that stood on the site of the current hall, and he updated it to the finest Victorian standards. He also built a school and more houses here in the village. When Morton Pito went bankrupt, he sold the beautiful estate to Sir Francis Crossley, and it has stayed in the family across generations. We're now at Summerleyton Hall, or more precisely in the estate immediately surrounding the house. The hall and gardens aren't open to the public today, but it's by no means quiet here. I can see a herd of ponies, as well as cattle grazing, and I've just been confronted on the walk here by one small deer crossing the road. I don't know who was more startled. <laughs> And because it's high summer, the number of colourful dragonflies I've spotted is off the chart. As you can probably hear, I'm trudging through some very long grasses, as this part of the estate has been left to rewild. That is, to return to its natural state with minimal human intervention. And as a consequence, the balance of nature here has found its own rhythm. The mind behind this is the current Lord Summerleyton, Hugh Crossley. Let's go and meet him to find out how he's trying to get all of East Anglia to play its part in rewilding together. Hugh, thank you for having me. I've had a lovely tour around Summerleyton Hall. We're sort of bridging Suffolk Norfolk here, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. So Summerleyton, as in the estate, is split. The county line goes down, not the middle so much as the north half. I suppose talking about the diversity of the landscape here in East Anglia is a good point to talk about your newest project. That's right. So Wild East is a charity that I've formed with two great farming friends, one actually in Norfolk and one in Suffolk, but actually now is coalesced. So you're bridging the two? Well, I, yeah, as a borderman, I kind of have no choice but to live in, in both camps. But I mean, I've been quite involved with conservation on the estate for quite a long time. And 
there is, I think, a, definitely a, a mood of change in in ordinary folk as well as farming folk and up to governments. But it's also a crisis. I mean, as in a genuine crisis that needs to be acted on now. So we've kind of pinned our goal on it's taken basically 50 years our lives to to bring nature to the absolute brink and it's going to take don't be under any illusion 50 years to mend it in the wild east our kind of goal in a sense is to engage with quarter million people uh 000 people particularly young people who uh have access to and think about nature and their, and their footprint in a different way through we educate but also to return the 250,000 hectares which is 20 percent of the wild east back to nature that wow. is a change of culture. We, we've been doing it at Sunlayden for a bit. And I'm the first to admit that in the last few years, we've had quite a lot of perfectly nice criticism of the state of the place, particularly the park around the house, because people expect to see it in a more manicured state. Right. And they okay. associate super manicuredness with stately, with, with stately homes, sure. you know, at the garden. My, my, da- my dad would have been absolutely the same. What the hell is going on here? What are the thistle, <laughs> thistles and weeds and... And all that sort of stuff. So it it is, uh, you know, and it, that shift is cultural. There's no question. It's not. It's it's for everyone. So the mission of Wild East is to bring together the counties with a unified goal of improving behaviour towards the environment, sustainability, and practices, not just across farming, but across the board in the way the public are engaging with nature. Yeah, I think that is basically right. I mean, we've we've come down on three kind of core pillars and education we educate uh, we pledge and we grow and uh, taking them in that order if me and my peers who are in midlife now do make significant change from at least compared to the last 25 years wouldn't that be a good thing but also wouldn't it be a total waste if if we're leaving behind the education of a generation of people who are almost universally disconnected from nature where are you going to find the 250,000 well I, I think that it, it's, it's 20% of everything so 20% mm-hmm. of obviously the big acres come in farms mm-hmm. that drives a, a change in culture because obviously if farmers are happy to give up land to, to, to allow more space for nature then actually it, it's a requirement that we begin to shift our diet and recognize that our diet is what's driving the use of land if someone's got a 10-foot garden or a 10-foot backyard or or, or a slightly bigger garden or space, it doesn't sound like a lot, but if suddenly there's tens of thousands of people across the region doing that, actually, it's important for nature, for sure. And I think if uh, someone gave me a stat that in the UK, all the gardens of England are bigger than all the nature preserves or something. So it does matter. Wow. But what it, why it really matters, because it's changing culture, is making mm-hmm. people think and bringing it home, bringing it right into their space. And so that's, everybody taking part, taking small yeah, actions and realising that, that actually larger. is worthwhile because... My neighbour's doing it and my street's doing it and actually my whole village is doing it. And to so be honest, not... I'd be very happy to rewild my garden, that lawn. Yeah. It takes a long time to move. Well, quite, yes. <laughs> I mean, who knew that it was okay not to cut verges? Well, yeah. nothing, it, now people have woken up to that and actually you don't need to particularly. I mean, it's just that we love tidying up. So you're just redefining gardening as well yeah, as yeah, part exactly, of your movement. Yeah, Put everything back in the shed. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, and I think I think that is that is a change of culture. We we really want people to to live in a nature reserve rather than to visit one. It's extraordinary how much has been forgot, forgotten. I mean, I was sent an article by someone the other day about large black pigs, which are the ones we've released here down at Sutton Hoo Estate in mm-hmm. Suffolk. We let ours onto the marsh at Herringfleet, and of course, not only do they by rootling do some of the bioengineering that the RSPB with you know, and I'm by the way, a huge supporter of them, but would can afford to do with big machines. They do for free, but also they grow fat and they can out winter out there. And 
and th and then I saw this article and thought, well, well, you know, this is just normal. It's not that I've been original. It's just it's been forgotten. I suppose all of us are seeing the changes in our climates and environments. It's happening before our eyes every yeah, year. Yeah, for sure. And the weather conditions that result and the impact on human life. So there's probably never been a better time to have that call to arms. Yeah, well, I hope so. I hope That's so. That's really exciting. Well, thank you very much, Hugh. It's been brilliant to walk around the estate and see what you're doing here today and to meet you. And of course, your consultant, Achilles, who is asleep on the sofa next to you. Yes, yes. Achilles with a very low, I hope, very low carbon footprint. <laughs> <laughs> four carbon footprints and a wacky yeah, tail. Yeah, four, four, four carbon footprints. Yeah, he's a useful part of the team. There's never been a better excuse to put down the hedge shears and put your feet up in the garden after all. Wild East are also developing a scale with scientists so we can all track our own carbon footprints. You can find out more about their work online and on social media. Back on board now and I'm heading across the broads inland towards Norwich. At points, the train travels next to the waterway, so every now and again you can have a wave at people in their boats. This is fun. There are definitely two different paces for how you can travel through this landscape. Next up, I think we need to find out a little more about the broads themselves. The Museum of the Broads is in Stalham, North Norfolk, and it brings the stories of the Broads alive. I spoke to the curator, Nicola Hems. Nicola, tell me about the museum then. How long has it been open? The museum has been in existence for 24 years now. It tells the stories of the Broads. The Broads are a pretty unique landscape. They were formed when the mud banks silted up around Great Yarmouth and the estuary behind became less water and more land, more peat and woodland, and gradually the area has been inhabited. It's been inhabited really from Roman times. The broads themselves are man-made. They were originally peat diggings and peat started from Roman times and continued on until about the 1200s. And then we had some giant sea floods, um, the area flooded over and the peat diggings were left really as lakes. Oh my gosh. Peat wasn't so important at that point uh, because coal was coming down from the north of the country for fuel and it was coming down by ship and of course these new lakes and the rivers that attached to them were ideal transport links. So that's really how, how the broads were formed. So they are a totally man-made landscape but they're so important to nature. We have some really important species here. The swallowtail butterfly, for example, is only found here. It's amazing to think that this, this landscape is so man-made because when you, you kind of walk through it or pass through it on the train or on the water, it feels so very untouched in a way. It, it amazes a lot of people. It wasn't really until 1952 that the findings from a scientist called Joyce Lambert were made public. And she concluded by doing a series of experiments by, by basically putting an auger down into some of the lakes she found an that an auger, it's, it's, a, it's a long pole that takes um, cores of, of earth up. And she did some measurements and she concluded that not only were the sides of these lakes vertical, but the bottoms were completely flat, even though they were sort of hidden over by vegetation on the edges. So it was right. very obvious that um, they were man-made and that some work was done and it was, it was discovered that really that they, they were mostly peat diggings. Some were brick diggings, but the vast majority were peat diggings from a long time ago. 
the kind of channels that were cut all connect up with the, the natural rivers and waterways as well? Or has all of that changed? Because, you know, I'm trying to get my head around this, this huge area of land. There's like a north broad and a south broad. Perhaps you could describe how it all fits together for someone who's never been or looked at a map. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, OK, we'll just start. The museum is at Stalin, which is at the northern end of the broads. And that's in North Norfolk. Mm. And then you can travel down by river to Great Yarmouth and then across to Norwich. And Great Yarmouth, of course, is on the coast. And then you go further south down towards Lowestoft, which is in Suffolk. And just across sort of inland from Lowestoft is the southern end of the Broads. So it is a vast area and it's managed now by the Broads Authority. It's part of the National Parks family. So it is it is managed and conserved as, as it is, really. If the sea were to breach, the salt water would go up. The river system would kill a lot of wildlife and would cause major flooding. So it, it, is, it is something we need to be aware of. So that's really interesting because not only is this landscape being kind of shaped by the hand of humans, it's now completely down to humans to maintain the wildlife that's, that's sprung up there and made it its natural habitat. Absolutely, yes. Yes, it's up to us to maintain that, that seawall as best we can. It's up to us to ensure that the waterways are kept clear, both for boating and also for for wildlife and to try and just keep the landscape as it is whilst also welcoming tourists of course you mentioned tourists and boating and that's obviously a huge part of of visiting um, Norfolk could you tell me a little bit about how tourism has changed the way people visit and, and use the broads The real start of tourism came from the 1880s because the railway um, in this area started in 1876 and by 1883 it reached the big hub in Norfolk which is Melton Constable and for the first time people could come from the Midlands and from London to enjoy the coast and the broads. Some of the owners of wherries which are the big boats that used to transport goods around the broads were being put out of business because rail could carry goods far, far quicker than wherries ever could. Right. Oh, can you describe wherries for me for a moment? Because they're, they're really special, aren't they? Yes, of course. Wherries, wherries were designed from the sort of late 1700s. They are big, broad boats. They are very shallow boats because a lot of our waterways are shallow. And they varied in size considerably. The biggest ones would and could go out to sea, but certainly wow. didn't go that far. The little ones would then navigate the narrower waterways and every village and town on the broads has what's known as a stave and a stave is a Mm -hmm. public landing place, a place where you can land the boats to take the goods on and off. They're used now for tourism, but they were used for landing goods. So you'd have a ship come to Lowestoft or Great Yarmouth. It might have coal on board. It might have building materials or or grain or because grain for malting was really important. We, as I said, we had a big brewing industry around here. So that might, sure. that, that, that might arrive by ship and then the wherries would meet the ships and then they would then take the goods to wherever they had to go, be they villages or city of Norwich or wherever. So they were really important as transport links. I just wanted to delve a little more into how people's livelihoods changed around the broads over the past hundreds of years. Well, I would imagine most people used to work on the land. We had something called marshmen. Marshmen would would look after the land. They would make sure the land was being drained and the ditches were cleared and the cattle were tended. We obviously still have a lot of agriculture in the area. Farmers tend to use big machinery. Farm, farms don't tend to employ so many people anymore. We do have industrial hubs still in our towns and our cities. And we also have quite quite a big sort of scientific hub in Norwich as well, in the, at the John Innes Centre. But a lot of people locally have seasonal jobs. They work in the tourism industry. 
So we're very, very reliant on tourists. I think the Broads Authority estimates we have between seven and eight million people visit the Broads every year. And that's phenomenal. And that that supports a lot of people, including local shops and just small local industries. So, Understanding how people have used the land and worked in the Broads helps us make sense of how life and livelihoods here have changed over the centuries. On the way towards Norwich from Summerleyton, you'll eventually pass the quiet station of Cantley. There's an award-winning station garden here, but little would any passing traveller know, this village is also the site of Britain's first sugar processing factory. Every year, this factory turns 1.5 million tonnes of Norfolk and Suffolk sugar beet into 220,000 tonnes of sugar, here on the banks of the River Yare. Sweet! The factory opened towards the end of the First World War, and in the early days, the wherry boats would bring beet from the fields to the factory for processing. And more recently, the waterways were used to deliver nearly 270 tonnes of energy-saving equipment. We'll be stopping off to explore Norwich in our next episode, but for now, we're changing trains in the pretty village of Reedham, a great place to stop for lunch by the river before we head back east towards Great Yarmouth. The connection between Reedham and Great Yarmouth is rather special. This branch slides through the marshland with magnificent views in every direction. There's just one stop along the way, and that's the Burney Arms Windmill. This traditional windmill overlooks one of the most beautiful nature reserves in East Anglia and has stood here since the 1870s. Mark Smart is the senior site manager for RSPB's reserve at Burnie Marshes and Braden Water. He lives at Cantley and works further down the line to conserve almost 1,000 hectares of land, including wet grassland, the Braden Water estuary, and to juggle cattle, people and machinery. Underneath the serene exterior, there really is a lot going on in this landscape. The reserve actually sits within Halvergate Marshes and the whole landscape is very much a working landscape. So it's farmed and managed uh, mostly for cattle, for, for beef production. But there is something like anywhere between 80 and 100 different landowners, obviously RSPB being one of those, and a whole range of different sizes of operations from literally local family-run businesses where they'll just be the odd marsh to some of the biggest beef operations in the east of England. See, I've only kind of experienced it as a tourist walking the Wherryman's Way from Great Yarmouth. I've definitely got lost wandering <laughs> around those fields thinking, right, I can get out that way. And oh, OK, maybe I'm stuck. It is, it is a very, very large landscape. <laughs> and even being there for 20 years, sometimes uh, you, know, it, you, you do get a little bit disorientated. And you have to be very, very careful <laughs> about staying with the footpaths and, and this sort of thing else. You can get very, very easily get lost. Yeah, I bet. And tell me a bit about the RSPB land. Why has that particular area been chosen for its, its special conservational interest? So the, the RSPB has been on site on Halgrove Marshes since the sort of the mid-80s. And the, the reason for choosing those particular pieces of land is A, they are probably some of the lowest lying areas within the, the whole Halgrove but also they are immediately adjacent to Braden Water ah. because the birds will use, obviously, the, the wet grass and areas that we have, but also the intertidal estuary mud at low tide. So, you know, they, they all very much work together. Mm. There's a real draw, isn't there, in terms of the kinds of wildlife and birds that actually come here throughout the year? The, the RSPB land, but also Halbergate in general, is, well, it's internationally important for wintering waterfowl. And we can get over 130,000 wintering waterfowl between, I suppose, peak numbers of January and February. 
But equally, through the the spring and summer, particularly the spring, we are very important for breeding waders, so things like lapwing and redshank. And the site supports... Um, it's probably about 30% of the entire wader population in the Norfolk Broads at the moment. So if people are coming via maybe via Great Yarmouth and taking the footpath or they're, they're getting the train, what is it you think that makes it worth a trip for them? What makes it so special? If you're into remote wild places and you enjoy sort of being in these sort of big massive great landscape areas however many people are on on the site you can actually still find your own your own little area for peace and quiet all the way through to if you want a, a real whale spectacle for wildlife coming onto Braden Water and Halvergate in January February it will literally blow you away in terms of sheer volume of birds if if you want to come and experience what would have been a classic grazing marsh full of sort of calling lapping and redshank surrounded by chicks um, adults displaying on a nice warm spring day burn is also the place to come it's wild and wet right it is the, it's the remote landscape and speaking of really really amazing walks that you can do and that you can only really reach on foot the bernie arms windmill can you tell us a little bit about that yeah so so the bernie arms windmill is owned by english heritage it is the largest or the tallest wind pump in the Norfolk Broads. You can walk to it and that's what most people do. You can come in by boat because it's right by the side of the River Yare um, and obviously at the sort of the top end of Braden Water. There is also obviously the Burnie Arms Station as well which is I believe now one of the smallest railway stations in in the UK even. That itself is actually quite an experience to actually get the train in and then walk back whether it be to Reedham which is the nearest village heading sort of towards Norwich or whether it be sort of get the train in from Great Yarmouth and then walk back. That is probably the best way of actually visiting the site. Best of both there by the sounds of it. Leave the car behind. (laughs) It is, definitely. The quiet carriages that pass the remote Burney Arms eventually join the other branch of the Wherry Lines in Great Yarmouth. The railway itself was originally built to service the boatyards here. You may know this seaside town as a traditional holiday destination with its piers, theatre and arcades, But beyond the ice creams and amusements is a fascinating maritime and naval history. Becky Smith is a heritage guide for Great Yarmouth Tourism. She's a born and bred Yarmouth girl and has lived in the area all her life. Hey Becky, it's great to meet you. Thanks so much for talking to me today. You're very welcome, Catherine. It's great to talk to you too. You've seen a bit of change in the town in your time, is that safe to say? Yes, definitely. A lot of people aren't aware of the history of Great Yarmouth. It dates back over a thousand years. We were recorded in the Doomsday Book. Shipbuilding was huge right up until the late 1800s. There's so many different industries. Yarmouth seems to reinvent reinvent itself, basically, with all the industries. And the shipbuilding alongside the fishing in the town were the two prominent ones during the medieval period. Yarmouth is known for the herring and it's what Yarmouth was built on. If you Again, if you go all the way back, even before the doomsday, the town was fishermen with little ramshackled huts on the beach. The herring industry here in Yarmouth starts in September and runs through till November. It's not a year-round thing. And it's what Yarmouth is known for, that those famous silver darlings, the Yarmouth bloaters. Silver darlings. <laughs> yeah, the silver darlings. And 
people can learn about the fishing and maritime past a little more, can't they, in one of the museums in the town? Yes, so we have the Time and Tide Museum, which is a museum to Yarmouth life. And it's actually based out of an old herring curing works. And it's you can learn all about the herring industry there, as well as some of the other trades. There's also a little bit dedicated to the sailors because, again, Yarmouth, along with many other seaside towns, was a naval port and a lot of sailors stopped there. And where our building is, our tourist information, it used to be a home for shipwrecked sailors. Did it? Because they couldn't pay, they would leave behind um, little treasures that they'd picked up on their travels. And it's known as the Bolter Collection. And there's a couple of cabinets of curios actually within the time and tide of all these trinkets and treasures. What kind of, can you describe some of those trinkets oh, and treasures? Oh, there's, um, there's huge conch shells. There's a stuffed blowfish. Can you tell us a little bit about one of Yarmouth's greatest inventions? <laughs> yes, certainly. What a lot of people don't realise is that although the fish finger was invented in Canada, it was Great Yarmouth that actually first produced it all the way back in 1955. Birds Eye had a huge factory on the south town side of the river and they were producing the fish finger right up until 1987 when the Bird's Eye factory decided to move uh, its production over to Lowestoft. Captain Birdseye jump ship, did he? Well, that is an amazing fact. And I'm also now very motivated to have fish fingers for dinner. So thanks. <laughs> what else surprises people when they're walking around with you on your tours? We have the second most intact medieval town wall in the country. Obviously, the first wow. one is York. 2,200 yards in length. There was originally 16 towers and there was 11 gates. And a lot of those towers still exist today. And it's one of the walks that we offer every single year. We've been doing the medieval town wall walk now for 20 years. And it still amazes people to this day when we take them round. What is it that makes you love your job as a tour guide? My speciality is gory stories on a wicked walk. <laughs> and I think with, with any town, with any place, you can't just tell all the fun history. You have to tell the darker side. Oh, yes, please. I mean, we, we, we've got everything from witch trials um, right up to Yarmouth had a hand in the execution of Charles I. Wow. Well, it's really great to hear about the broad history, the deep history and some of the vibrant things that are happening in, in Yarmouth as it undergoes its renaissance. So thank you so much for telling me about it today. Rolling on up the wary lines on the brand new Greater Anglia trains really does seem like the best and most comfortable way to see this part of Norfolk. We're back on track towards Norwich now and next we pass through the market town of Acle. This is the gateway to the broads for many boaters and home to an impressive 13th century church as well as beautiful walks along the water and Weaver's Way. We're staying on board a little longer, but just before we swap scenery for city, we have one final stop. Just seven minutes outside of Norwich are the quiet stations of Brundle Gardens and nearby Brundle. When you step off here, the blooming station garden is a unique sight. There are even lawns on the platform, but this area has a hidden botanical history. Chloe Veal is chairman of the Brundle Local History Group, and Greg Chandler's lead of the Brundle Gardens Adopter Group. It's a lovely place, is East Anglia. You look at everywhere, everywhere else in the country, and I, I'm glad we're living in East Anglia, out the way. 
And of course, we're very unusual to have two railway stations, not just one. Yes, the Wherry Line, which is the original one from Norwich to Yarmouth, was the first branch line that was constructed after the main Norwich to London line. So we are literally the first line in East Anglia. So tell me about yourselves. What do you do with your free time? <laughs> Being retired. <laughs> But, well, if you have any. Well, this this is it. Being being retired, um, people quite often say, "Well, what do you do during retirement?" Well, there is never a quiet moment. You, you're either extreme, <laughs> extremely busy, and the wife tells me to slow down. You're doing too much. Have a rest, as, as well as looking after the station. I've got a large garden myself, and a garden next door, and do the few odds and ends to help neighbours out. And in fact, I've just taken delivery of two very large planters that we are going to fill with wildflowers. So not only you're making it a lovely place to visit, you're also doing your bit for the environment and encouraging biodiversity as well. That's, that's very, that's, that's very inspiring. <laughs> and Chloe, what about you? What do you do with your free time? You run the local history group, right? We've got about 50 members. This is a very exciting year for us, or the next two years anyway, because we're working in partnership with Norfolk Record Office on the digital archive that we've accumulated since 2005-06, a collection of material that's been contributed to by local families, and we've accumulated about 14,000 images altogether. Have you come across any amazing little hidden gems or discovered any remarkable things in your research digitising all these images? Oh my goodness, where do you begin? I mean, actually, <laughs> if once you get down to the minutiae of a village like Brandle, there is so much of interest. And, of course, I suppose it all started really in um, 1881 when a Dr Michael Beverley, who was a surgeon and chairman of the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital Board of Management, purchased some land west of Brundle, near where uh, Brundle Garden Station is now, treated it as a sort of holiday home, but developed a wonderful arboretum he planted rare trees and plants, uh, landscaped it. It sounds like paradise, it really does, or <laughs> a very English version of it. <laughs> yes, indeed. But along came in 1917 a wonderful character called Frederick Holmes Cooper, who was a mm. cinema entrepreneur, and he turned them into what was became known as the Switzerland of Norfolk. There were 60,000 visitors a year, <gasps> coming by train and also by steamboats from Yarmouth. Was that where the Brundle Garden Station was then constructed? It, it was actually Frederick Holmes Cooper who persuaded uh, the London and uh, North Eastern Railway to open a halt so that visitors could get off the train and straight into the gardens, use his hotel, use his tea rooms and enjoy the walks by the river you know, it was a great attraction in the area at the time. So for people who are hopping on the train today, coming down the Wherry Lines, and they stop at Brundle Garden Station, they won't find, sadly, this paradise garden, this Switzerland of Norfolk anymore. Sadly, poor old Frederick Holmes Cooper, um, he wasn't a very well man. Unfortunately, in the middle of the 30s, which we're getting into depression period, if you were an independent it was tougher for you and sometimes uh, the banks foreclosed on their loans and for Frederick Holmes Cooper it came at the wrong time. He had to sell everything including Brundle Gardens and his home 
And then in the 80s, some rather lovely houses were built, just only a few, about two or three. And the people who bought these houses in the 80s decided to start restoring the grounds Oh wow! between them. And notably, Gary and Janet Muter, who bought Lake House and joined their neighbours in a massive restoration project. And in 1987... Um, they held their first open day of the restored Brandle Gardens uh, to raise funds for water aid. Uh, every year they do open it on high days and holidays. What an amazing history in its modern day. It's really nice to know that there are people who are sort of nodding to that history and working hard to kind of restore parts of it to its former glory. Arriving into Norwich completes our ways around the wherry lines for now. But there's so much more to see, and travelling by train really does allow you to get to places that you never could by car. Hopefully you've been inspired to don your walking boots and explore the broads for yourself. Just don't forget to brush up on your countryside coat so you don't bump into some disgruntled cows. Next time in our final episode, we explore the treasures of Norwich on a city tour, go mammoth hunting, and take to the sea via the Bittern Line. We've got the right age sediments and and they're not even turned to to rock where you find mammoths and things they're really soft which is why the sea and weather erodes things out so easily which is one of the reasons why it's a great place to find fossils and then the deeper you go they 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 are rocks um, and you get things like sea urchins if you've enjoyed this podcast why not share it with a friend and see if they'll join you on your next adventure you can find out more about traveling the wary lines at wherylines.com and book with Greater Anglia at greateranglia.co.uk.